Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decodering, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by the New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. So today you're going to hear my conversation with the filmmaker Taika Waititi. It's hard to know where to start when you talk about Taika. He got to start in New Zealand. He was able to take a really unique style of New Zealand comedy and bring it to the entire world. In our conversation today, he kind of defines New Zealand comedy, and honestly, it kind of sounded like Canada to me. Anyway, when I say he brought it to the world, he makes these low-budget New Zealand films, and they start to get acclaimed, like nominated for an Academy Award acclaimed. That gets him involved with the HBO show Flight of the Concords, which gets really big. Then he does What We Do in the Shadows, which is called, and I don't really know how high the bar is for this, the greatest vampire comedy movie ever made. And then, and this is when I first met Taika, Marvel approached him. I mean, this is a small-budget New Zealand filmmaker, and Marvel approaches him to make their new Thor movie. He makes it. It's called Thor Ragnarok. It's hilarious, and it's considered one of the most successful Marvel films ever. Then he makes a movie uh, for himself. He makes a movie called Jojo Rabbit, which was a comedy about Nazis and World War II. That wins an Academy Award, gets nominated for Best Picture. It's all just getting bigger for Taika. So you would think his next step would be an even bigger film, like, I don't know, Titanic 2, directed by Taika Waititi. But for his latest film, he decided to go small again. Taika's new movie is called Next Goal Wins. It's a film about the American Samoa national football team, which was considered the worst international soccer team in the world. There was a documentary also called Next Goal Wins about the team about 10 years ago. The story is, is that they lost in international play to Australia 31 nil. They bring in a coach from the outside so they can qualify for the World Cup, but that's not really what's on their mind. Really, they just want to get one goal. And Taika's film is based on the real players, including Jaya Salua, who's a non-binary trans woman, or as her culture refers to her, Fafafine, which is a third gender in Polynesian culture. All that to say is that Taika Waititi has a really interesting story and interesting perspective. He's indigenous from New Zealand. He's Maori. And he has a lot to say about the way he tells stories and the way we all tell stories right now. Here's our conversation. How are you? Good, Tom. Good to be back, huh? And last time I I don't know if you remember this, last time I saw you. So you and I met first. You came in to talk about Thor. Yes. And then um, I was at TIFF. I, just, I feel weird saying this to you, but I'm going to say it. I was at TIFF at the film festival. I was in the hotel. And, what year? Uh, geez, when was this, Catherine? 2019? 2019, maybe? I know exactly what you're going to say. What am I going to say? I was running away from a woman. You were running towards me and you tackled me to the ground. Oh, I did? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a different hotel story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it could have easily been your story. No, yeah, I remember that story very well. It gave me something to brag about for for years after that. Oh, that's good. That's good. I just thought I was to say, get save me, get this woman away from me. <laughs> yeah, please, please, Tom, do your best. 
Uh, congratulations on this film. I, 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 were you a soccer fan growing up? Um, I really loved watching World Cups uh, all my life. I've watched, loved watching those, um, just watching countries compete. Um, I didn't follow any particular team like on, um, you know, I wasn't like a follower of like Man United or anything like that. Um, uh, also, New Zealand growing up, we only had two TV channels, so it was pretty hard to see any of those kinds of games. So um, I played a bit of it as a kid, but then, like most kids, um, just started to migrate over to rugby. And that became my passion. Um, but I do, since making this film, I have like a, a newfound respect for the game of football or soccer. I um, isn't really, I, I guess just playing rugby all my life, I didn't um, really think too much about the complexities or the skill level that you need to, um, to play football. And it is a tough game. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of... Um... This is going to sound reductive, but it's a lot of running. When I watch it, I just can't it's get over how much sprinting. It's a lot of running, and when you're watching it, well, usually I feel like run outside of watching it, it feels like a lot of running for nothing. <laughs> yeah, a lot, lot of running not to get past two. A lot of running not to, <laughs> and also a lot of the time not even to get a goal. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I feel like all those, <laughs> my memory of, of watching soccer is just always, it's like 1-0, 2-1. Yeah. Nothing super crazy like thirty-one nil, like the the game. There's a great segue, like the game uh, that was uh, lost by American Samoa to Australia in two thousand and one. Thirty-one nil, still the biggest record, the record for the biggest loss, international loss in the game of football. Eight minutes gone, one nil. Then came the tenth minute, and the eleventh. And as if that wasn't enough, though it was, in the last minute, Australia scored their 31st and final goal. When did you, when did you find out about this team, this American Samoa team? Um, actually, I'd never even heard of this game happening or anything when it did happen. Um, I guess it was probably like a, a, like a news bite or something like that, but I watched the documentary in 2014, and that was the first time I'd really heard of it. And... Um, and I couldn't believe that it was real. I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of this this loss. But also, um, I was just amazed at the, at the turnaround that the team went through and yeah, the great move to get Thomas Rongan in to coach the team and um, and uh, and also just like the characters within the documentary. And I was drawn in particular to Thomas and to Jaya. And... Um, and it was around about, and, and after watching it, I never even thought I'd ever want to make a sports film. But I watched that, and I thought it's got all of the, all of the elements that you want in a great underdog, uplifting underdog sports film. And I thought this would be so easy for me to do. And I just thought <laughs> I wouldn't even I barely have to write this. Um, it's all done. So, um, so it was selfishly, it was also laziness that made me think, oh, I could just do this really fast. Um, ironically. I shot it in 2019, and it's now four years later. Finally, it comes out. To help me Pandemic, understand. We couldn't work on a film for a year, and yeah. then also the strike, which was, took away almost another year. It's actually great, actually. Having a year, I think I've had 14 months away from editing this film, and it was just bliss. I went back and watched it after all that time. I thought, oh, I can see what's wrong with this. Um, it's just like someone else has made this thing, and like, you know, I just thought, oh, I know you can just change this and this and this. And I really wish I could have more time away from projects now, um, and then like come back to them with a different 
perspective. I mean, wouldn't that be great to be able to take 14 months away from every movie you make and <laughs> be able to come great. back to it afterwards and, and say, oh, this is what I think of it? Kubrick, man, he, he had it right all along. <laughs> 10 years between films or something. Yeah, make four films in your life. That was the right idea. <laughs> yeah. Hold on, help me understand this better. And I'm, I'm trying to think about people who don't know the story as well. Like, what was it about this documentary you watched about the American Samoa team who had suffered the worst international loss of all time? I think it was 31 nil. And then they hire this uh, this coach to come in from the outside and 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 try to rebuild the team and just try to get them going. What was it, what, like when you say I was blown away by it? I was really intrigued by it. Like what what was it? I've seen uh, we've all seen you know great sports films and stuff. And um, I think one of my favorite ones is Cool Runnings, and this just felt like Cool Runnings but with soccer. And I just wanted to see more. You know, the idea of seeing Polynesians, Pacific Islanders on screen. Um, really drew me in and I'd just been away making Thor and Jojo Rabbit and I'd been away from the Pacific for you know, about six years or something and I, you know, I was homesick and I wanted to be around my people again and um, this was an opportunity to do that and to make and also to go back to making a small film in my style which is like you know 25 day shoot very fast very small crew and very intimate and like most of my films you know this underneath this I, f- I felt that there was a story that the themes within this this tale were ideas of grief and loss and how people deal with those things. And uh, in all my films, it's, that's what they're about. And, um, and you know, the grief and the loss that comes from having such an embarrassing loss um, in, a, in a game of soccer. So it's less about sport or it's less about soccer for me. It's more about the people and about, you know, just it was just like a nice, intimate film about family. Did you get to meet any of the original soccer team? Uh, Jaya Salua, who is um, played by Kaimana in the film. She's a Fafafine uh, player. And she, um, I met her, she was the first person I met, actually. And met her, met the, the Mike and um, Steve, who, who made the documentary, and Thomas uh, Rongan, who was a big larger-than-life character, who's a um, commentator for... Um, MLS and he um, he is an amazing character and him and Jaya were fantastic because they gave me permission really to you know to, to sort of have my way with um, with their stories and their characters because you, I'm in New York can you hear the sirens um, they really overdo it here don't they yeah it's a bit loud I mean we all know that we all it's know like, the trucks you know, but they make the sirens go yeah, yeah. it's ostentatious if you ask me it really is yeah, it's, it's a little just, much. And all the horns and everything. It's yeah. Get over yourself. Showing off when they drive oh, around. Um, so where was I? Jaya. And so because yeah, I, I needed to take some liberties with the story and wanted to tykeify it for like a bit of a term and make it a bit more entertaining and add my humour in. And you know, with any story, you've got to kind of like shape it into a sort of a, you know into a feature film. So um, they were very generous and understood. And I was you know like for instance Thomas. Is a fantastic guy. Um, you know, he is in real life a really big character, um, and all, everything in the film did happen. It's uh, it's just like the uh, hi. Can you come back? <laughs> hi. 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 No, I'm just doing, in the middle of a call. Maybe not. Tell the truth. Did you pay that person to do that to get out of this interview? Is that, is that what happened? Yeah, i got to go, bro. <laughs> yeah, I, gotta, I gotta go. <laughs> oh, okay. So um, hold, hold on. So you, you met, what, what, what feeling did you get from the, 
the soccer players in American Samoa when you went, when you went to their, tell their story? Well, I think that there's still some, uh, you know, there's probably still some embarrassment and a little shame over that big loss. But, you know, thankfully they got Thomas in and they scored their first goal ever in this game you know, that you'll see in the film. And then straight after that, they scored their, they won their first game. And I think that really, like, that dealt with the demons and the shame and the, that dark cloud that was hanging over them. Um, and, you know, it was a really massive moment for them and for the country. You mentioned Jaya there. Um, uh, Jaya is, is Fafafine, um, um, a non-binary uh, trans woman. Um, Polynesians, I should say, in American Samoa, see it as a, a very accepted gender of its own. And she really becomes kind of the heart and soul of the team. So talk to me a little bit about her and, and talk to me a little bit about how you wanted to tell her story. Um, so Jaya's story is, uh, is she, I mean, in the documentary, she's one of many stories that, that um, are presented. But for me, I think just because I love the idea of fafafine and I like, you know, something that's very accepted in the Pacific Islands and um, you know, many islands have their, their version of it. And it was very normal growing up around fafafine in, in New Zealand. And uh, so it's something that I was always used to in like everyone in New Zealand. And I feel like, the, you know, something I really wanted to show to the world was this um, a part of our cultures that are accepted um, and have been accepted for a very, very long time. And yes, historically, have been it's been a very normal and sacred part of um, of our cultures. And you know, it's described in different ways in different indigenous cultures, but most of them have that two spirit idea in Native America. But what I love is that you know. Thousands of years ago, someone was like, "I want to. I, de- I identify like this, and I want to do this." And people were like, "That's cool. You do what you want. We need to like go fishing and like eat, and like there's more important things to think about <laughs> than like you know, I mean, like get hung up on how someone else wants to identify what someone else wants to do with their body." So I just like the idea of presenting that, you know, and, and in a way where we didn't have to explain it and we didn't have to like make it the main part of the film. It's not like it's like look how progressive we have got a trans player and it's like you know because that would have been the only part of the film and, and yeah but there's something very subtly powerful about that I think you know I think there's something very subtly powerful about um, saying uh, in through the depiction of, of of Jaya in this film for at a time when you know trans people's like identity in especially in the US and you know I'm not going to give Canada a break including including here in Canada is you know people have such strong opinions of it and, and, and you know and 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 people and trans people are living in fear and to in this film show people being like hey in certain parts of the world and in certain part in certain cultures this is not a big deal and not just that it never has been a big deal there is something very subtly powerful about that Taika. yeah oh that's a powerful thing I, what I'm saying is that it was just important that we didn't make it a big deal yeah. in, the film. in the same way that we don't make a big deal of it in real life. It's like, you know, Thomas has questions and everyone's like, well, I don't know how to explain it. It just is. And I think that's a really nice way of, of doing it rather than like a speech. He's suddenly out of, you know, in the third act, someone doing <laughs> a big giant speech about being yourself and like, you know, using Jai as an example. And you know, it's like just cringy. It's just not the style of film that I do anyway. And so, um, 
So she was really important. She was fantastic. And then Joanna in real life is real, really great. You know, she's a spokesperson for equality in FIFA and, um, you know, and is a, um, an ambassador for equality. And so, yeah. There's been a couple of times so far just talking to you that you've said things like, that's not a, that's been, I, I can tykify that, or that's not the kind of film I make, or the thing that runs through my films is this. You have a, you have a, seem to have a great sense of yourself and uh, as a filmmaker. Did you know that when you knew you wanted to start making films? Like I asked, I was talking to Edgar Wright about this the other day. Like when you, when you knew, well, maybe the, the question is, when did you know you wanted to make films? And, and did you know what kind of films you wanted to make? Um, I started making films when I was about 29. And um, uh, before that, I was doing various other things. And um, yeah, like theater and comedy with my yeah. friends. And, um, and then I... Um, I sort of started to dabble in film and made some short films. And those were really, like, I made um, like my first short film, Two Cars, One Night, which um, is set in my community and it's sort of set at the pub I grew up outside of and um, it's a very personal film. I just wanted to show, like, a little slice of life and uh, and and that was a, a, bit, a bit more poetic about it. But it was really not until I did Boy, my second feature, that I felt like I knew myself a lot more. Eagle vs. Shark was my first feature, and that one I I made as a, in some ways, really just to see if I could make a film. So then the next one was What We Do in the Shadows, which is completely different to Boy or Eagle vs. Shark. But the sensibility is there. There's a tone and there's like a, there's a, definitely a voice within those films. But I think there's an overall thing that I've always been drawn to. And that, a lot of that is trying to avoid things that I hate. Trying to avoid things that you hate. So, like, you take on a... a like in cinema, films that I've, you know, like, there's things I've seen and, like, growing up with a lot of American cinema and not liking a lot of it or, like, not liking the, the sort of weird saccharine feeling that I would get from watching a lot of American... the treatment of, Amer- of subjects in American films. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're very guilty of it in, in New Zealand as well. And, yeah, obviously there are moments in every film that's going to, you know, make you feel a little bit like that, but... It was more just like trying to, like in New Zealand, we've got a very sensitive um, kind of cringe meter where we feel like if it feels too sentimental. Yeah. Okay. If it feels too sentimental. Like sentimental is a bad word for me. Um, <laughs> someone described my stuff as sentimental. I don't think that's a good thing. So we're trying to avoid that feeling, but still create emotion and heart. But it feels like you were trying, like it feels like you almost challenge yourself to make films that are, that opened the door to sentimentality in an easy way and to make them in an unsentimental way. I mean, if you look at Jojo Rabbit, I mean, that's... that's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. That, oh, yeah, no, I want the... Fear, it's like, it's hard to, to describe. I want the emotional parts, but I want people to feel and to cry, and, you know, and, and to have those moments of joy and be, be uplifted. It's, it's a feeling. It's a feeling that, like, when I have... When I watch my films as I'm making them, I uh, have to be very sensitive to how I feel about it. If I'm like, if I start to, like, I test my films a lot. And if I sit in the audience, if I start slinking out of my chair in embarrassment and going, oh, this feels off, this feels wrong, then I don't know exactly what it is, but I know there's something wrong. Has that and happened? I'll take the time code and I'll say, okay, we need to work on this because I felt a bit icky. Has that happened really to you? Yeah. Yeah. Some moments do. I, you know, some, I've definitely had moments where I've, yeah, sometimes it's like a joke won't work and you feel embarrassed about that. It's just, it's just anytime you feel embarrassed, you should just look at that. Were you surprised at all that that sensibility, that very New Zealand 
sensibility that you talk about there, that sort of aversion to sentimentality, that sort of like low cringe factor. And also like just speaking as someone from, I'm also from an island in the middle of the ocean, like I'm from Newfoundland. So like I find it really interesting that like, and we have a very specific type of humor that I don't know if it would translate all around the world. Or like I would be surprised if a very like the kind of humor that we have in Newfoundland translated to like a wide global audience. Was it ever surprising for you that for you out of New Zealand, that this very sort of regional style of humor did really translate all around the world? Um, yeah, it was a surprise, really. Uh, we grew up in like it was a mix of like American comedy and uh, British comedy. Um, you know, my favorite TV shows, Faulty Towers, um, growing up in Blackadder and all these sort of British yeah. series. But our, and, our, and being trapped on an island in the middle of nowhere, as you, as you were, there's like a, there is a sense of humor that develops, but it, and I feel like it was very different to everywhere else. And I feel like it's like you're very observant because all there is to do is just to watch other people and watch other shows and watch things. You come to, like, you leave New Zealand, you go to America, and all you do is observe because it's just such a wild thing to look yeah. at. Yeah. And um, and so it, it feels like, you know, we don't talk a lot. And we don't, you know, we don't like the sound of our own voices that much in New Zealand. And so we often like, come to America and like, oh, you guys talk a lot and um, and all about yourselves. And so like, it's like, so that's kind of, I think that's, you know, there's a base there of like how we approach things and approach comedy. And it's like, don't have anything to say, don't say it for a start. <laughs> and, like, and then what is an original way of like looking at stuff? I call it um, like, like, comedy of the mundane which is like just i think comes from just walking around empty suburbs your whole childhood with friends bored and just nothing to do and just talking about stuff and making jokes about stuff and it's just like the comedy of boredom or being bored and like so look a lot of stuff we do is like and there's not a new thing but it's like you know, just talking about boring subjects. I do my flat chores. No, you don't. You yes, don't. I do. That's why we're having the flat meeting. The point is, Deacon, that you have not done the dishes for five years. Vladislav is right. It's unacceptable to have so many bloody dishes all over this bench like this. I'm so embarrassed when people come over here. Well, what does it matter? You bring them over, you kill them! Like what we do in the shadows, nothing happens in that film. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's just people talking about, you know, nothing really happening and like, you know, and... And I just loved looking at the most boring elements of being a vampire. Like, how boring would it be? And would be boring. And that, I think, for, for us, felt like a new thing. If you want to know how hard you can laugh at nothing, at, like, pure mundanity, tonight, watch What We Do in the Shadows. More of my conversation with the writer and director and actor Taika Waititi after this. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. 
You're in the middle of my conversation with the Academy Award-winning filmmaker Taika Waititi about his new film, Next Goal Wins. So Taika, if you don't know him, is the filmmaker behind uh, the Marvel film Thor Ragnarok, uh, Jojo Rabbit, which also won an Oscar. But his new film is a little smaller. It's based on the true story of the American Samoa soccer team finding its way back after losing 31-0 to Australia and hiring a new coach so they can just get one goal. Taika is an indigenous filmmaker. He's Maori, and he spent a lot of his success trying to lift up other indigenous filmmakers. For instance, he's one of the executive producers of the critically acclaimed show Reservation Dogs. So in this part of the conversation, Taika talked to me a little bit about why it's important to him to have indigenous characters in his work. But he has a lot to say, I might even say some hot takes, about how and why indigenous and non-white characters need to show up in stories right now. Here's more of our conversation. You know, one thing I was talking about yesterday, we were talking with Dan Escule, who's uh, one of the directors of, of Reservation Dogs uh, this year, the TV series that you're the executive producer on. And we talked a little bit about your support of indigenous storytelling um, in North America, uh, here in Canada, you know, back back home in New Zealand. And I was reading a quote about this, um, about this film we're talking about, about Next Goal Wins. And it reminded me of something you just said about the comedy of mundanity, but also like the importance of allowing people to be mundane. You said something along the lines of like every time indigenous people are depicted, especially South Pacific indigenous people, or maybe I'll just get you to say it, but they're often seen as very important and noble and they give speeches to educate everybody, but that there's a power in allowing indigenous people to be mundane and silly yeah, and wrong. Allowing them to be boring characters and allowing them to 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 not be the most yeah, like to not be that character and to be like someone who doesn't have the answers or someone who doesn't know how to track <laughs> the bad guy. Or uh someone who's not connected to nature or doesn't know how to fish. I like those are more interesting to me because we've been depicted and also also so true. <laughs> it's like so many of us like live in the cities now and like you know, could fish to save ourselves. So, yeah, there's like a lot of. I just feel like, yeah, it just needs, and, it's, and even with reservation dogs, you know, like people's idea when you say Native American to someone, like you know, their like the image in their head is definitely not those kids on their rears in that TV show. Um, and it's just about yeah, exposing people to more versions of ourselves. It's a powerful thing, man. You know, in its in its subtlety. Yeah. Yeah. Like we don't want, like I think it's 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 also a form of tokenism. It's just like you know, yeah, we did a, you know, we we managed to get, you know, a native or an indigenous person or a Pacific Islander in every TV show, you know, in America right now. Um, but there's, you know, some people would see that as a triumph. I would see that as pointless unless it's meaningful and you know, and it has and has a purpose and it's not just tokenism and they're like ticking the box. Because that part of the diversity solution um, is not working. Where it's like, well, now we need a black character. Now we need a brown character. Now we need a white character. It might be a Mexican character. And that's it. And then you're like, wow. I think the diversity thing is like shows can be diverse. But instead of like just having, you know, ticking a box from every culture or every ethnic background that you can, a show can be diverse by just being a black show. That is diversity. The diversity is 
in creating more stuff by more people. Res Dogs is a very diverse show because it's all Native Americans. Yeah. And I feel like that's where the diversity is. Like, yeah, look, I'm happy for people to mix it up if it makes sense. But, you know, it's like we need more black shows. We need more Asian American shows, uh, American Asian um, shows, Pacific Island shows. So we're seeing different, diverse point of view, points of view. How important is it for you? with the success that you've had when you go through um, with everything that's happened to you to make sure that you can advocate for more indigenous storytelling, more indigenous storytellers. Like, like one of the things that we were talking about yesterday was this idea that like the success that you've had through Marvel and through your Jojo Rapp and these films doing really well, you've been able to use that success to like bring up other indigenous filmmakers to, to give yeah, voice to other yeah. indigenous filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, um, it's a great part of it, really. It's something that I never anticipated. I didn't get into this at all to help my people. <laughs> <laughs> I was purely selfishly motivated this entire time. Yeah. <laughs> no, I am. Um, I, I, you know, I've always been proud of where I've come from, and like we've all, and and in New Zealand, and through all my films, like you know, we run a sort of a part of the um, the film set, which is like hiring. Um, native youth, and so we did the four films. We have like internships for for Aboriginal kids to come and like get work experience in various departments. So each department has to hire um, some native um, young native people, and not necessarily even kids, but just to give them a taste. And, and it doesn't and it doesn't need to be their dream to be a filmmaker. It's just to give them, you know, to show them that there's, there are other options out there that this is a possible job. And a lot of them stayed in it and are still working today. And um, and so I think a lot of it starts with that, you know, it's like giving back, cringy, cringy term, giving back. I can see the New and, Zealand uh, cringe thing happening to you as I say it, as you like, say it. Giving back, pay it forward. Oh. <laughs> 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 um, and, but, you know, it, it's just like, yeah, pull people up and look after each other. And yeah, that's community. And so, you know, it's any chance I can get to help my friends out and, uh, you know, nepotism is a great thing. It's like help each other out. Yeah. And like, I, you know, it, it, people have given, you know, they've taken chances on me or like given me, you know, help me out with favors and stuff in my, in my youth. And um, yeah, you have to keep doing that. Uh, Taika, I really love the I love the film. I love getting a chance to talk to you, man. Thanks so much for coming yeah, on the show. Yeah, you too, man. Good to see you again, Tom. Thank you. It's my conversation with New Zealand filmmaker, writer, and actor Taika Waititi. His new film, Next Goal Wins, is out now. One of my favorite things to say on Canadian radio... That's some Nova Scotian hip-hop from a few years ago. That's Classified with the rapper K.O. on a song called New School, Old School. Classified, if you don't know, is a massive figure in Nova Scotian hip-hop, and he's been a central figure in K.O.'s career as well. As you'll hear in a minute, Classified kind of took K.O. under his wing when he was starting out. He moved from St. Lucia to Halifax to go to university and work on his music. Flash forward to now, K.O. has a brand new EP out. It's called Trip, and the way that people talked about classified 10 years ago, which was there's something interesting happening out of the East Coast of Canada. That conversation is happening right now about K.O. I'm so glad he, he joined me to talk a little bit about his backstory and set up one of the songs on his new record. K.O., welcome to the show. 
Hey, man, how you doing, man? Thank you very much for having me. Are you kidding me? It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Now, I was doing some reading about you, and okay. I, I, is, is it true you started out as a, as a folk dancer? <laughs> That's word around town, isn't it? Yeah, I started, um, I was part of this group in St. Lucia called the Helen Folk Dancers. And it was um, sort of like, you know, we do traditional dances, like traditional St. Lucian dances that are like pretty indigenous, indigenous to our heritage. Um, that was a long, long time ago when I was a kid, but that was my first experience in, I guess, performing publicly. And even I got my first experience in public speaking during that time because we would have these sort of like internal public speaking uh, competitions, if you will. Yeah. And I remember winning the trophy for that. I, I must have been like maybe nine, ten years old at the time. But yeah. Wow. So I, I loved I love folk dance, by the way. So I love any chance I get to talk to a folk dancer. So you <laughs> nice, so nice. You, you go to you go to university in in Halifax at St. Mary's and that's and that's where you become a rapper? I was a I was a rapper prior to that. Uh, I was doing it in St. Lucia for quite some time. I'd actually, uh, it was kind of difficult to get that sort of validity, if you will, from my people because rap and hip hop isn't necessarily like the genre or choice of choice in St. Lucia, or necessarily something you would consider from someone who is like indigenously from there. Yeah. Um. So how I got past that obstacle was collaborating with with every and anyone that I could from different genres, from jazz groups to soca groups to um, dance hall to, to you name it. And I kind of took adopted that same mentality, that same approach to when I came here in Halifax. I came here for school, yes, but music had always kind of been um, the the goal at the end of the day. So I got into the community by sort of just being the hook guy. You know, I was the guy who would feature on everyone's song, whether it was a chorus, whether it was... Uh, 16 bars or whatever, but that's how I kind of made my way into the music scene here in Halifax. Halifax has a long um, hip hop history, you know, stretching back, Definitely. stretching back decades. How did you find fitting into them? I loved it, man. It was what I really loved about Halifax initially, and first and foremost, is how um, welcoming everyone was. And I found that the the music scene here in Halifax was a climate in which re it really allowed you to. Uh, discover and rediscover yourself through networking and through collaborating and through creating and experimenting without any type of like fear of criticism. Like I, I, I found it here to be, I found here to be a place that really allowed me to like find myself musically or, or continue to find myself musically, I would say. Did, did some of like the, some of the legends take you in? Did like people like classified reach out? Yes, actually. So I, it, Little's the general, rest in peace. He was one of the first people to really sort of take me under his wings, so to speak. And then through Little's, I met Quake. Quake and I are, are like, I consider Quake Matthews one of my brothers. Uh, we did a lot of collaborating in the past from working on collaborative albums together to touring together. And eventually that led to working with Classified. I remember Classified had this like, Facebook competition at the time and whoever won would win the opportunity to work on a record with him in his studio. Oh. I happened to win that, go into the studio with him to work on the record and what was supposed to be just a one and done song turned into an entire EP and we just enjoyed working with each other so much that he did, he later on took me to tour on tour and uh classify was very instrumental in getting me my first record deal he was instrumental in getting me my first management deal and getting me my first booking agent i really sort of adopted his infrastructure at the time and he gave me that foundation that i needed to 
really figure out my own way throughout this industry here in Canada. Well, I'm excited that people are going to get to hear your music right now. Can you tell me a little bit about, we're going to play Getaway. Can you tell me a little bit about what the, where the song came from, what it's about? Absolutely. That's one of my favorite records off of the album that we put out, Trip. Uh, it was the first record, I think, that we had recorded and really became sort of the the anchor for the rest of the project. Uh, musically or sonically, there's a lot of different elements in there from jazz to I'm a piano to a little bit of reggae to, of course, hip hop. And the sentiment behind it, the message behind it is, I mean, pretty straightforward where some people spend a lifetime waiting for the right time to get away. And, and whatever that may mean to you is what it is. But at the end of the day, I just hope people can take this and enjoy the music for what it is, whatever message that they get from it. So, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are listening to Q. My name is K.O., a.k.a. King K.O. and it cuts souls to sounds on the ones and twos. And you're about to check out my single, Getaway. Some people spend a lifetime Waiting for the right time To get away Let we get away Some people spend a lifetime Waiting for the right time To get away let we get away. Yeah, I've never been there before. So why does it feel so familiar? Can't just wave if you're sure. It's the renaissance of the real ones. Out of sight, out the way. I just tag this bread for my children's children's children. Legacy over listens. Only one life to live in here. Can't get this out of my system. Search for what we've been missing, y'all. We can't lose sight of the mission. They won't always get the vision. Most resilient and most consistent. That's KO, Getaway, off his new EP, Trip, which is out now. Tomorrow on the show, if you're into poetry, man, oh man, Linton Kwesi Johnson is one of the greatest modern poets. His decision to combine poetry with reggae helped kickstart the dub poetry movement. Now on the 50th anniversary of his first poetry collection, he'll be here to reflect on his life and to tell you why he may never write another poem again. If you want to get in touch with me, Instagram is the best way to do that, at Tom Joe Power. Or uh, though I'm, I, I'm trying not to look at it that much, but I'll, I'll look at it. And email q at cbc.ca. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.